0: Chapter five. As we continue our, our series uh, through the book of Romans, I've uh, mentioned this, I think, at the beginning of the series. But uh, you know, some uh, passages will call for a little slower pace, um, lingering, and others we can take a little more in bigger chunks. Uh, the Romans five is one of those slower pace kinds of passages, and so we'll be looking this morning. We looked uh, last week at Romans five verses one and two. And this morning we'll look at Romans 5, verses 2 through 5. Before we uh, read God's Word, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we open up your Word this morning, I pray that you would fill us with your Spirit. I pray that you would stir our hearts, O oh Lord, and cultivate our hearts, that it, our hearts might be good soil on which your word would fall, that it might be planted in us in such a way that it takes root and bears fruit of transformation, that would be for our good and for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would lead us into a deep understanding and a deep application, a deep living out of the hope that we have as believers in Christ. I pray, O Lord, that this hope may sweep through this place this morning and sweep through our hearts and stir our hearts, that we might live in more boldness and confident expectation of who you are and what you have for us. And so we offer ourselves to you and pray that you do this work in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 5, but again, the focus will be on the last part of verse 2 through verse 5. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom... We've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That's what we looked at last week, that one of the benefits of our justification is is peace with God. And now Paul goes on to say, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You may be seated. In one of her poems, uh, Emily Dickinson writes about hope, and she says this. She says, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. And sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. In troubling times, the the thing that we most need is hope. And hope is what Paul gives us in our text this morning in the open, opening verses of Romans chapter 5. Like I've mentioned, Paul outlines the, the benefits of our justification by faith. So what, what difference does that make in our lives? What good does this, this whole doctrine of justification do for us? And, and Paul said, as we looked at last week in verses 1 and 2, the first major benefit of our justification is that we have peace with God. We have which we said means that we are reconciled to him. And now Paul, in verses, the second part of verse 2 through verse 5, reveals the second major benefit of our justification, and that is that we have hope. Before we dive into the text, I want to spend just a little time unpacking and, and talking about the biblical idea of hope because, and I've talked about this before, but the biblical idea of hope is something much stronger than our common understanding. In our sort of everyday usage of the word, hope is something really quite flimsy and weak. Uh, The way that we use the word hope, our understanding of hope, implies some measures of doubt. It assumes the possibility that whatever it is that we hope for may not come to be. So for example, we say things like, I hope it doesn't rain, or I hope it doesn't snow, or I hope it does snow, whatever your particular attitude towards snow might be. I hope the new neighbors are quiet and nice. I hope the Packers win the Super Bowl next year. Well, these are all flimsy hopes. (laughs) There is a possibility, in some cases a strong possibility, that these things won't happen. Maybe it will rain. Maybe it won't snow. Maybe it will snow. The new neighbors might be loud and obnoxious. And I hate to burst anyone's bubble, but if you are thinking the Packers are going to win the Super Bowl next year, you are living in fantasy land. That's not going to happen, especially if Aaron Rodgers is playing for the Jets. (laughs) This is the way that we, in our common everyday usage, this is the way we use the word hope. It it always assumes, it always is a, a flimsy thing that implies some measure of doubt. But the biblical idea of hope is something very different. In fact, sometimes I wish that we would translate it differently because it has, we, we can't help but carry these, these sort of common everyday English connotations. Uh, we, we carry that along with the word hope. And so when we, we see that word in the Bible, we carry all that with us. But that's not what the, what, what the Bible intends. That's, that's not the biblical meaning at all. Biblical hope is not tinged with doubt at all. In the Bible, hope implies not doubt, but certainty. In fact, as I've given you a very concise and and brief, but very uh, accurate definition of hope in the Bible before, and I'll give it to you again, the biblical meaning of hope is confident expectation. So whenever you come across hope in, in, uh, well, I shouldn't say, almost always when you come across hope in your Bibles, you can substitute that thought, that phrase, confident expectation. It is a confident expectation that assumes the certainty of the thing hoped for. And so in our text this morning, Paul describes the nature of the hope that we have, and he says three things about our hope as believers. He says, first, that it is a hope of the glory of God. Paul says in verse 2, and we rejoice, or we as some translations say, we boast, we exult, and it's a, it's a strong form of that word rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Our, so our hope is an eschatological hope, which means it is the confident expectation that in the end, we will share in God's glory. That's what Paul is talking about. What Paul is saying here is the same thing that he will say later on in Romans. That, that we who have been justified will be glorified. That's, that's what Paul means by the hope of the glory of God. It is the hope of glorification. That we will dwell with God in the fullness of his glorious presence. We see this hope fully realized in John's vision and revelation where John said he heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. And John goes on to say that he saw the new Jerusalem and he says, I I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb is its lamb. The hope we have is the hope of the glory of God. It is the, the deep assurance that, that, that we are destined to dwell in, in the unveiled fullness of his glorious presence. This is what some of the earlier theologians called the, the beatific vision. The hope that we will see God face to face. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that even now we are being fitted for this glory. He says, and we all who with unveiled faces, that's an allusion or reference back to Moses in in, in Exodus meeting with God on the mountain. We we all who who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed, presently being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. And the end result of this transformation into an ever-increasing measure of glory will be the ability to see God in all of his glory and to know him fully, which is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see only a blurred reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. And and just to give you a little bit of the the historical context, because they think that what Paul or what uh, when we read what Paul says there is lost on us a little bit because when we when we look in a mirror we see a very pretty much a crystal clear reflection right we see pretty pretty close to the exact thing of of the real thing that's not the way it was in Paul's day in Paul's day mirrors were made out of copper and sometimes hammered copper so imagine looking into a, a, a a copper sheet Um, It was a, a very dim and blurred reflection that you would see. And so Paul says, now that's the way we see when we, in our relationship with God, we see only a blurred reflection like looking at yourself in a piece of hammered copper. But then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And the Bible makes it clear that this future glory, this this glorification is, is something so beautiful and so substantial that it makes all of our present troubles appear as dust on the scale. As Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I mean, think about that for a moment. The, the, the sufferings, the hardships that we endure, and we're going to get there in, in a little more depth in a minute. But the sufferings that we endure are not even worth comparing. They don't even register on the scale in comparison to the glory that will be revealed in us. And as Paul said to the Corinthians, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That's the first thing that Paul says about our hope. It is a hope of the glory of God, this hope of glorification. The second thing that Paul says, and we're going to spend uh, most of our time here this morning, the second thing Paul says about our hope is that it's a hope that enables us to rejoice in suffering. Paul says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's what we looked at already and he goes on to say, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. Now, this is such a significant statement that I want to I linger on it for a little bit. I want to take some time to, to walk us through it, kind of expression by expression. So, Paul begins by making this, this rather shocking and, and utterly countercultural statement. He says, We rejoice in our sufferings. He doesn't say we grin and bear our sufferings. He doesn't say that we, we put up with our sufferings. And he doesn't say that we rejoice in spite of our sufferings. No, he says, We rejoice in some translations because of. Our sufferings. See, we, we are trained and, and wired and conditioned to despise suffering, to resist suffering, to do anything within our power to avoid suffering. I mean, you go into any Walgreens or Walmart or department store and you'll see you know, aisles filled with shelves full of, of uh, medications for for pain relief and ways to minimize the suffering that we might endure through seasonal colds and flus. Paul goes against this natural inclination to resist suffering and to despise suffering and he says we rejoice in our sufferings. And he's talking here, of course, about much deeper kind of suffering than aches and pains. That word sufferings is the Greek word phlipsis. And it refers to real hardships and afflictions. It covers a a wide range of, of trials and tribulations. So we rejoice in our persecution, Paul would say. We rejoice in our imprisonment. We rejoice in our losses. We rejoice in our debilitating diseases, we rejoice in our rejections. You see, we we begin to feel the gravity of what Paul is saying, and maybe some of us are in those situations this morning. We, We are enduring real kinds of hardship and tribulation, and Paul says we rejoice in these sufferings. And the same message this is not just sort of a standalone statement the same message is taught consistently throughout the new testament james says the same thing in his letter and when he says consider it pure joy my brothers whenever you face afflictions of many kinds again what a what an odd and countercultural thing to say peter says the same thing in his letter he says Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus himself told his followers to rejoice in suffering. He said, blessed are you and people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. And then we see the apostles living out this countercultural rejoicing in the days immediately after Jesus' death and resurrection. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 5 that as the apostles began doing kingdom work in the name of Jesus, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin were opposed to them. They, they hated them. They didn't like what they were doing at all. And so they, they, uh, they brought them into prison, they imprisoned them, and then they brought them out and they flogged them. They beat them. And how did the apostles respond? Luke says the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. So, what Paul is saying here in Romans 5 is not an isolated saying, it is a theme woven throughout the entire New Testament. As believers, we are to rejoice in our sufferings, not just to grin and bear them, not just to endure them without complaint, but to rejoice. In them. I, I should add a little statement here that says we, we have to be a little bit careful because some people can take that too far. Some people can then assume that, that, we, are, that we have to either pursue suffering or that we are called to just be happy about suffering. That's, that's really not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that when bad things happen and when suffering comes, that we are to be happy about them, that we are to be so glad that the suffering, that's, that's not what he is saying. What he is saying is that, that in our suffering, there is deep cause for rejoicing. But how can we possibly do that? It's such a, a shocking Statement begs explanation. It demands reasoning. And Paul gives us the reasoning. He says that we rejoice in our sufferings because we know something, we know that God is doing something in and through the suffering. And then Paul goes on to give this chain of effects that show what what God is doing. He says, we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. So I want to walk us through that a little bit. Paul begins the chain by saying that suffering produces perseverance. And the word perseverance is a translation of the Greek word hippomone. hypomone. Which, which really, I think the, the best translation is, is steadfast endurance. Now, I'm, I'm not a, a, a runner, but I think what Paul is saying here is very much like running. I mean, if you're not a runner like I am, you're not going to probably just decide one day, I want to run a marathon and get up off the couch and go run a marathon. You're not going to do that unless you have some superhuman kinds of natural abilities. No, it takes hard work and and training to build up that kind of endurance. You have to go through the grind of pushing your body to the limit and strengthening your heart and and building endurance. And so you might start by running a mile and then you'll you'll push yourself to run two miles and then maybe five and then 10 and then 13 and eventually through a whole lot of sweat and struggle and, and tears, you might have the endurance to run a marathon. Well, that's what Paul I think is saying about suffering. That suffering is God's training regimen to to produce steadfast endurance in believers as they run the race of faith. And the way this works, I I think, is, is that suffering makes us profoundly aware of our need for God and His grace and His strength. I mean, when, when life is easy, when things are going well, we tend to grow complacent and weak. That's just sort of our natural inclination. We, we turn into sort of spiritual couch potatoes. Suffering drives us to God, moving us to, to pray to him, to spend more time with him, to, to plead with him, to, to depend on him, to find our strength in him. Which is why Martin Lloyd, Lloyd-Jones said, we are always liable to forget our need of Christ And tribulations always drive us back to him. So suffering produces this steadfast endurance. But this endurance is not the end result or the goal of what suffering is doing in us. Paul goes on to say in the next uh, link in the chain that the steadfast endurance produces character. The word character is the Greek dakame, which means tested or Proven or approved. And so I think the, the idea is, so it refers to something that is tested. So like a metal that is, has that is gone through a refining process comes out docame, docamos Tested, proven, genuine, refined, approved. I think the idea here is that enduring suffering proves that we are truly disciples of Christ. So when our faith endures through trials and tribulations, we, we come out tested and approved. I think we see the same thing in the, the parable of the sower, which I, I like to call the parable of the soils, because if you remember that parable, Jesus says that the uh, word of God is like soil that's, that's spread on different types of soil, and the different types of soil refers to different types of hearts, different ways of responding to the word of God. And Jesus says that people respond to the word of God differently depending on the, the soil condition of their hearts. He says, some people have hearts that are like shallow soil on rocky ground. Do you remember that part of the parable, that, that the shallow soil on rocky ground? And Jesus says the, the seed falls on that, that soil and it sprouts quickly right away. Uh, but because the, the soil is so shallow, the, the, the plant can't take any root. And so when the, the scorching wind comes or the heat, the plant withers right away. And Jesus explains what that means. He says, when the word of God is sown in hearts that are like that with sort of shallow soil on rocky ground, they re- the people receive it quickly with great joy, sprouts up right away, but it never really takes root. And so when, as Jesus says, when suffering comes, when trouble comes, when hardship comes, when persecution comes, when struggle comes, Jesus says they quickly fall away. They don't pass the test. The faith that they expressed is exposed as a false faith, not proven to be genuine. But those who endure through suffering are dakame, are tested and proven to be true followers of Christ. So suffering produces steadfast endurance, and a steadfast endurance through the suffering reveals a character that is tested and proven to be a true follower of Christ. And then Paul goes on to say that this character... Produces hope when we are tested and and approved when we come through the testing knowing that we are indeed true disciples of Christ it leaves us with a deep and unshakable hope because it shows that we are truly children of God that we belong to him and if we belong to him then we are assured that he will carry us through to the end and we will receive the glorious inheritance that he has promised I think we see this this connection clearly in James 1, verse 12, where James says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that's the first part of what Paul has been talking about here in Romans 5, that is is, uh, uh, the character proven through testing. Blessed is the one who endures under trial, because having stood the test, now here comes the second part, the hope that flows out of this. He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And so we come full circle back to hope. Paul began with hope by saying that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then he says we rejoice in our sufferings. And the reason why we're able to rejoice in our sufferings is because we know that God is doing something in and through the suffering. He is producing within us a steadfast endurance. And the steadfast endurance gives birth to a character that has been tested and refined and proven to be a true disciple of Christ. And knowing that we are true disciples of Christ produces within us this deep and substantiated hope, this confident expectation that we will be glorified with him. And so we are able to rejoice in our sufferings because it produces in us a hope that so outweighs the suffering that we will gladly endure suffering just to attain it. And so my, my hope and my prayer for you and for us this morning is that if you find yourself in a place of suffering this morning, I hope first that you, that you don't, don't what, you, what you don't hear is sort of glossing over, oh, it's no big deal. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, rejoice, be glad. No, that, that's not the message. It is deeply painful to go through suffering. My hope and my prayer for what you do here is that if you find your place, yourself in a place of suffering this morning, and again, that word suffering covers a wide range of hardships and trials. If that's where you find yourself, then I hope that you find encouragement and comfort in these words of Paul. That God is doing something in and through the suffering. It is not an, an arbitrary suffering. It's not the hand of evil triumphing over good. God has not left you or forsaken you, as the prophet Isaiah said to the people of God who are in exile. Your way is not hidden from the Lord. Your your cause is not disregarded by your God. No, God is, is in it. God is behind it. God is doing something in it. He's producing something stunningly beautiful in you through your suffering. He's shaping you according to his good purpose and plan. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that suffering is evidence that God delights in you. And that on the surface, that's, a, that's a kind of a jolting thing to say. But then when you follow the logic of what Paul is saying here, he's right on, isn't he? Suffering is evidence that God delights in you because it shows his loving interest in you. It shows that he is so concerned about you. He hasn't just sort of left you and abandoned you and said, i got more important things to deal with. No, he is, he's taken an invested interest in you, and he's so concerned about you that he is refining you and shaping you into the image of his son. So much does he love you and want what's best for you that he's taking the time, painful though it may be, to shape you into the, into the most beautiful thing in all the universe, the image of his son. And so Martin Lloyd Jones said, "There is nothing more suspicious than for a Christian never to have any trials. Suffering is a tool in the hand of a loving God, who wants to shape you into the ultimate good of the like of likeness to His Son." The great evangelist Billy Graham once told about a friend of his who had gone through just a horribly. Uh, kind of a tragic time and it was like losing almost everything that meant anything to him on this earth. He lost his job and he lost all of his money. He lost his wife and he lost his home. And, and it was a deeply, discouraging, a, a deeply discouraging season of hardship and loss. And one day this, this man was kind of wandering through the city just trying to you know, trying to make sense of it all, process everything and there was a, this sort of this gloom of depression hanging over him and he came upon some Masons that were doing stonework for a, for a, a massive church, and the man asked the you know so he noticed one of the workers that you know chiseling away, uh, taking great care, chiseling away at a little triangular piece of stone down on the ground, and and Billy Graham's friend asked the man what he was, the worker what he was doing, and 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 the man said, well do you, do you see that opening way up there at the top of the the church spire? He said, I'm shaping this piece down here so that it will fit in up there. And for whatever reason, that little statement and that little image just pierced Billy Graham's friend's heart and he realized in that moment that that's what God was doing in him. Chiseling him. Shaping him through suffering. Shaping him on earth into the glorious image of Christ in heaven. The hope that we have is a hope that enables us to rejoice in suffering. There's one last thing that Paul says, and we'll, we'll cover this uh, quickly, but the last thing that Paul says about hope in our text, our hope, he says, is a hope that does not put us to shame. He says in verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame. Some translations say that hope does not disappoint us, which is a translation that makes good sense, but it, it's it's a... The, the, the disappointment just falls short. It doesn't, it doesn't have enough strength to quite capture the word in Greek. The, the word in Greek is much stronger than disappointment. And so I think I prefer, even though it doesn't quite sound as nice or as smooth, I, I prefer put us to shame. You see, what, what, what Paul is talking about here is the humiliation that you might feel if your publicly expressed expectation is not realized. So let me give you an example. So now, you know... This Sunday is the NFC and the AFC championship games. And so whatever comes out of this Sunday for football in the world of the NFL will lead to the Super Bowl in a couple of weeks, right? So the two big football games uh, this afternoon that are taking place. And suppose that one of the football players for one of those teams uh, says ahead of the big game, and I haven't heard anything, but sometimes you do hear this ahead of big games like this. Suppose a player says, you know, we're going to go out there. We're going to win the game. And yeah, you'll see us in the Super Bowl in a couple of weeks. And people sometimes say things like that. Well, what if that were to happen and then they, uh, that, you know, that player's team ends up losing the game today? Well, they would be, that player would be put to shame or humiliated because his publicly declared expectation proved to be false. And I'm sure the people would have a, a field day with letting him know about it because what he had said what he had when we were so confident about what he had expected didn't come to be now what paul is saying is that is that, that will never happen with christian hope that our confident expectation will not put us to shame it will not leave us humiliated by proving to be a false hope in the end the world may see suffering as an undermining of Christian hope, as sort of a dismantling of hope, a, a proof that our hope is a sham. Look, you know, you look at the, the God that you, that you thought you worshipped and knew. Now look at what he's done to you. And this, this place of suffering that you're in, your God didn't come through for you. What a joke your Christian faith is. But Paul says that our hope will be vindicated. That everything we hope for will be fully realized, that our our confident expectation of glory will be fulfilled. And how do we know? How do we know that our hope will not leave us humiliated in the end? Well, Paul says we know because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And I'm not going to say a whole lot about that because that leads into the Love is going to be the topic of of the next section of text, which we'll look at next week. But God's love for us in Christ, Paul says, is is even now, even in this moment, is a seal, a deposit, a a guarantee that our hope will be realized because God will not leave hanging those upon whom he has set his affection. God will not abandon those he loves. And if if you... question that, just just read the Bible, you see that again and again and again that God does, does not and will not leave or forsake or abandon those he loves. If you have received Christ in true faith, then you can be assured that your hope will not put you to shame because God's love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit and his love is a fierce and unyielding love that will hold you to the end. A love with a grip that is so fierce and so strong that there is no power, as Paul will say later in Romans 8, there's no power in all of creation that could ever pry you away from it. Our hope is a hope that does not put us to shame. In troubling times, the one thing we need is hope. And we find in this text, in these words of Paul, a deep and unshakable hope, the kind of hope that our souls crave. It is a hope of the glory of God, this hope of glorification, a hope that enables us to rejoice in suffering and a hope that will not put us to shame, leave us humiliated in the end. It is not a flimsy hope, for it is a hope that is rooted in Christ, as the writer of Hebrews said, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, an anchor. There's nothing flimsy about an anchor. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. That's the kind of hope that we have. And so we can say, In the words of that great hymn, our hope is built on nothing less, as we sang earlier this morning. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And when darkness veils his lovely face, we rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, our anchor holds within the veil. I was duck hunting a year or so ago and tried some deep water hunting way out in the middle of Green Bay. And, and, uh, and it was a little bit risky because I was used to hunting in shallower water and I didn't have a very big anchor. And so I, I tried anchoring my boat with, a, with about a, like a 15-pound anchor and it, it did not work. <laughs> the waves came up and the winds came up and my boat was getting blown all over and getting blown through the decoys and it was just a disaster. Paul says... And the writer of Hebrews says, our hope is not like that anchor. It is a gigantic anchor that's not, they're gonna hold the boat so it's not going anywhere. This is the hope that we have in Christ. Let's bow together. Lord God, we praise you for the hope is ours in Christ alone. We praise you, O Lord, for this living hope, this hope that we will share in your glory. And we can't even begin, Lord, to, to fathom and comprehend what a glorious thing that will be. This hope that enables us to rejoice in suffering because the, the thing that we are hoping for is so weighty and so substantial and so beautiful that it, that it so far outweighs any suffering and trouble that we endure. This hope that is so firm and secure because you have poured your love into us in Christ that it's like an anchor that is keeping us and holding us through the highest and heaviest storm. Because your love is a love that will not and and cannot let us go. Lord, in this time of silent prayer, I pray that you would breathe into us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, a, a renewed understanding and a renewed confidence in this hope that is ours. Lord, hear our silent prayers. Lord, in the words of John Calvin, we ask that you would increase our hope when it is small, awaken it when it is dormant, confirm it when it is wavering, strengthen it when it is weak, and raise it up to new life again when it is overthrown. Lord, we pray that you would do this for your glory and for our good as we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.